This is Lee Wilkins, your co-host for Thinking Out Loud. And with me today in the KBIA studio is Gary Kramer, Executive Director of the Missouri... Okay, Darren, we're going to edit. Gary Kramer, Executive Director of the State Historical Society of Missouri, otherwise known as the guy who's in charge of building the lovely new building basically right across from Peace Park. Gary, welcome to Thinking Out Loud. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Okay. Well, so this has been a long time coming, and I would like for you to give our listeners a a little bit of history, oddly enough, about how this building came to be, and especially how the funding came to be. You're right. It's been a long time coming. Um, We have been in search of, of a new facility for probably 20 years. Uh, There was a time not that long ago in the late 90s, 1990s, when uh, the plan was to put us in a renovated and expanded um, McKee Gymnasium, the old women's gymnasium on Hitt Street. Uh, That uh, that thought ended with the economic downturn in the early 2000s, and, and it's a good thing it did because we would have filled that space up immediately. We would have still had the same problem we have now, which is parking. So in about, uh, I came to the State Historical Society in 2004, in September of 2004. And uh, in fact, one of the questions asked me when I was interviewed for the position was, what are you gonna do to help us get a new facility? So I was resolved from the beginning to, to try to get us into a new facility. That turned out not to be so easy, right? <laughs> it turned out to be very, very difficult. Uh, it be- the the effort became really serious in about 2007 and eight, when we were able to get the ear of multiple people in the legislature and in the Office of Administration. It was 2008 when the uh, people at the Office of Administration asked us to begin planning for the building and to do a, uh, a study of how much space we really needed. And so that began seriously internally among our staff in, in 2008. And initially, uh, we, we spent a lot of time on this. So this building that is currently under construction and nearly completed is not something that happened overnight. There was a lot of thought and planning going, go, went, that went into it. When we, we began, we actually thought we needed a building significantly larger than the one we have. The building we were initially envisioning was about 128,000 square feet. The building we ended up with is about 76,000. Uh, so one of the things that happened is we realized we couldn't afford a building that big. The second thing that happened is through extensive study and constant evaluation and reevaluation of the space we needed and and the functions that needed to be performed, we got a better sense of of how to operate more efficiently, of adjacencies and the need for things to be in juxtaposition to each other. And so eventually we decided that the building we were planning, 128,000 square feet, which had a price tag in excess of $60 million. Not cheap. We decided we could we could cut that down to uh, roughly seventy five to eighty thousand square feet, and the price tag went down to about thirty five or so million dollars. And so that's what we began to work toward uh, from about two thousand nine, two thousand ten. But it was the middle of the next decade before we actually uh, got the funding in two thousand fifteen. 
the General Assembly authorized uh, the expenditure or the, the issuance of $35 million worth of bonds. And, in f- and, and then that, of course, was approved and signed by the governor. Uh, we broke ground in April of 2017, so we're here a little more than two years later. Uh, as I said, the building has uh, 76,000 square feet of space, roughly double what we have now. Uh, one significant increase is the increase in the art gallery, which will be more than double. So I'm going to ask you to, to, to describe for our listeners, which is hard because we're radio, um, about about what is so unique and fun about the building. But I want to start not with the inside, but with the outside. So people who are coming along Elm Street, which you can't get past too much, are going to notice that there's that there's some stonework and a different kind of stonework that's on the outside of the building. So where did that stone come from, and why did you pick it from that particular well, let, place? Let me even back up a little further. We had uh, some, part of the most enjoyable part of this process was what seemed to be endless discussions. Uh, we had uh, architects. We interviewed a number of architects. We had a building committee that included staff and trustees and the architects. And we had endless discussions about what does this building mean and what, we, what do we intend for this building to say. And one of the words that kept coming out in these conversations was the word confluence um, because we, we began to talk and think about Missouri as a place of confluence, confluence of, of rivers where civilization really began in Missouri, the Missouri and the Mississippi, the Kaw and the Kansas, the Osage and the Missouri, and so forth. So uh, we wanted the building to reflect the coming together of lots of things coming together in Missouri at the juncture of a major highway, uh, coming together in the middle of Missouri where the University of Missouri is. In fact, the building, uh, one of the things you notice first about it is that it has two front doors. And one of the front doors opens to the campus uh, on Elm Street. The other front door opens on Locust Street to the the downtown community. And so it's, uh, when when you ask me, where's the front of the building? I say it has two fronts. Uh, Again, reflecting that concept of confluence, the coming together of of people in this institution. Well, and and from the times that I've heard you talk about about the building before, the fact that there is a a front door that, that opens to the community, not just the campus, is part of sort of the overall vision of the place, right? You you think that this, this, I don't want to say building, I'm going to, I'll call it a facility, is, is actually going to become a destination place for people to come who are visiting Missouri or visiting Columbia or making special trips to Columbia to do specific things. Yeah, uh, it, uh, I like the idea of the destination point. That dominated our thinking from the very beginning. Uh, another thing we decided very early on is that uh, we would use as much Missouri material as we could. Which brings us back to the facade. Yeah, the, much of the stonework that you see uh, from really the ground up is stonework from St. Genevieve County in Missouri. Uh, we actually went down to the quarry in St. Genevieve County and picked out the stone. There is some other stone at a lower level uh, from other places. Uh, there's some granite at the very uh, street level to protect against salt and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second layer of stone is a small amount from Indiana. There was a lot of talk about us using Kansas stone, 
Uh huh. We, 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 no war. <laughs> we were adamant that uh, we were we were not going <laughs> to no use Kansas stone. No Jayhawkers need apply. <laughs> yeah, and and so we're very we're very pleased that we were able to use a lot of. Uh, I, I would say maybe eighty percent of the stone, maybe more, is actually Missouri stone. Uh, there's a lot of of natural wood in the building because yes. again, we wanted that warmth of natural wood, and it's almost all it is all white oak. Missouri White Oak from Poplar Bluff, Missouri, uh, milled, I believe, in Marshfield, Missouri, in southwest. So we got southeast Missouri, the lumber came from, and southwest Missouri is where it was was uh, milled. So, and in the the drawings that I've seen, um, it, it, it's a I, I gotta say it's it's wide open. It's not it's not cut up in little rooms and a lot of hallways. And I assume that also was intentional. Yeah. Uh, the first thing you'll notice when you walk in from either of the front doors is the grand staircase, uh, which was inspired, uh, the architect tells us, by his viewing of Thomas Hart Benton's paintings with the flowing curvatures. Uh, the, the grand stairway is stunning. It's uh, encased in white oak. And you can stand by the grand staircase and you can see essentially all the uh, the services that the State Historical Society provides. So if you come in from the south uh, and look to the east, to the right, the Yard Gallery is right there. Uh, if you look to the left, there is a, a large multi-purpose room that uh, we can seat uh, 250 people for meals. Uh, and then if you just look up, you don't have to go anywhere, you just look up, and to the west you see this magnificent reading room. We really saw it for that room to be a place of inspiration and contemplation and almost reverence. And I think I think you, you can be the judge when you go in, but I think we've captured that. And then um, to the right, uh, you can see a couple of classrooms. We're going to be teaching uh, Missouri history for the history department uh, here at the University of Missouri in that space. There which are two is, classrooms. Which is pretty cool. One of my dreams for decades has been that there would be a space called the Center for Missouri Studies, which is what we're calling this building, where Missouri history and culture classes could actually be taught in the facility where the artwork and the documents and the newspapers and the photographs were were housed, and we will be achieving that dream. So I know one of the things about the, quote, old location, I'm going to put air quotes around it, which again, since we're on the radio, we can't see, um, is the art and the fact that there are two incredibly influential artists that are native to Missouri that the that there's actually a pretty good collection of. And I know I, I heard you say that just one of those paintings is worth multi-millions of dollars. So, yeah, we don't say the amount. No, I, I was very careful not to. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you're right. You're right. Uh, the painting of which you speak is probably the most iconic Missouri painting, uh, George Caleb Bingham's Order Number 11, which for many years when uh, a football game back in the, the old days of the Mizzou-KU rivalry, uh, inevitably uh, somebody from the... Uh, the visual media would come to do a spot and want to use that as the backdrop because it, it, uh, it was the quintessential border war image. Uh, we have a lot of Bingham, Bingham works. That's the most famous. We have a portrait of James Sidney Rollins, who was 
the father of the University of Missouri, the legislator, sponsored mm -hmm. the legislation. He was a close friend of Bingham's. Uh, we have a portrait of John Lathrop, the uh, uh, first president of the University of Missouri. Lots of portraits, some genre paintings. Uh, probably one of the most famous of those is Watching the Cargo, yes. uh, which is a, just a beautiful, beautiful painting. Uh, so we do have a, a large collection of Bingham's, and there will be a Bingham gallery uh, where there will be Bingham's on permanent display. We also have a large collection of Thomas Hart Benton paintings. Bingham yes. was, of course, the most famous of Missouri's 19th century paintings, Benton, the 20th century. Uh, many of our listeners will remember um, the longtime curator of the University of Missouri's art collection, Sid Larson, yes. who also taught uh, here at, in, in, at Columbia College or at Stevens Columbia College uh, for, for decades. And Sid was a protege of Benton's. He actually lived with Benton in Kansas City in the Bellevue House uh, when the two of them were working together on the murals that are in the um, Harry Truman Library. Yes. And that's how we ended up with a lot of uh, Thomas Hart Benton artwork. Well, but I think the thing that's remarkable about it is is that these are now, I think for the first time, in a real gallery setting where you can go from one to the other and you can go from one artist to another. And I know that some of them will be permanent, but my understanding is is that is that this society has enough art that some of it's actually going to need to be rotated through. Is that correct? Yeah, actually, uh even with the new space, we'll be able to show less than 5% of our entire holding. So there will be a lot of, of moving through. A lot of those are papers on works. A lot of them are actually editorial cartoons. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the work of Daniel Fitzpatrick at the Post-Dispatch, um, Bill Malden, probably one of the most famous cartoonists. Uh, more recently, um, um, I've forgotten his name now, but... Um, the uh, a fairly recent uh, cartoonist who was at the Post Dispatch for uh, more than forty years. So well, we have all of these, maybe at least uh, twenty thousand or so of these original artworks. Okay, so there's there's a lot of of what I I guess most people would call fine art. There's a lot of political cartoons. I mean, twenty thousand is a lot of anything, mm -hmm. but since political cartoonists are apparently going the way of the dodo. Uh, in our in our current contemporary society, there there's a lot there for people to explore. Um, what are some of the other parts of the collection that you sort of hope to to make uh, to make more available to the public so that people will be able to see this part of Missouri history that they didn't want to go to over to Ellis. That it, yeah. it would have been and, difficult, and largely because they couldn't find parking. Yes, uh, we will have on site parking for about fifty people. Mm -hmm. Uh, our staff is going to continue. Again, when we started this process, we were going to build a 100-space parking garage underneath the building. Nobody's, uh But, yeah, that quickly became way more expensive than we could afford. And then we were going to build a two-tiered garage on the northwest quadrant, and that mm -hmm. became more than we could afford. So what we ended up doing is uh, we're, we're simply going to pave that northwest quadrant of the lot mm -hmm. of the block, and uh, that will be for visitors and patrons only. The staff, we have about 30 full-time people working in that building and another 10 or so part-time. The staff will continue to park in university parking garages where they're parking now. So the parking will all be for patrons and for visitors. Um, 
So one of the things, as you say, that we're known for uh, is the art collection. There's only one other state historical society in the country, New York, which has its own art gallery. Uh, a second thing we're known for is our newspapers. We were founded by the Missouri Press Association in 1898. As Which a way. I, I don't think many people realize, but yeah. Yeah, and, and that was uh, an effort to save newspapers. We started, by the way, in what is now Jesse Hall. Yes. Uh, was then called the Academic Building. You couldn't do this today, but there were so many people involved with our beginnings who were part of the university that the university simply provided a space. And then when the library was built in 1915, we just moved over there. We've been there ever since. So this actually is the first time we've had our own facility. Um, the newspapers date to 1808. There are roughly 60,000 reels of microfilm. Uh, 1808 is 13 years before Missouri became a state. Some of these are newspapers from towns that don't even exist anymore. Uh -huh. uh, the newspaper collection is amazing, and it's incredible, and we continue to get newspapers in. We get about 300 newspapers a week in. Uh, we microfilm those, which is still the preservation technique in the world of preservation. Nobody trusts the digital files. We digitize for access, not for preservation. Okay. But that's expensive and it's very time consuming. We yes. have millions of pages digitized, but tens and tens and hundreds of millions of pages yet to go. Uh, the third thing we're known for is our large manuscript collections. Mm -hmm. uh, we have large political collections. We're now taking Claire McCaskill's papers. It's our first born digital collection. So that's pushing us into new horizons that we weren't quite ready to, uh, <laughs> to, to do. Change comes faster than you want sometimes. But we have a lot of the, the big names of Missouri politics, uh, John Danforth, Stuart Symington, Christopher Bond, um, Ike Skelton. Uh, we have the papers of all these. And these are large collections, some four and 500 boxes. Uh, and, and again, if you think about that, that's paper standing end on end the length of a football field. Thomas Eagleton's papers standing end on end would cover the length of a football field and a half. It's hard to imagine that. It, yeah, it is hard to imagine that much paper, and it's hard to imagine, I think, for for those of us who kind of straddle the eras, that many electrons that could get lost and go someplace else and never yeah. be retrievable. Yeah. Uh, we, we also have uh, lots of personal correspondence. We have a lot of World War II and World War I letters. We have a project going right now where we're digitizing and putting online letters written between boyfriends, girlfriends, mothers, sons, fathers, sons, siblings during World War II. We're using a, a bevy of uh, what we call e-volunteers to do that. We send them an electronic version of the, of the letter. They transcribe it and send it back to us. We proofread it and then we put it online. Uh, a lot of World War I letters, Santa Fe Trail journals, Civil War diaries and memoirs. One of my favorite documents in the collection is a journal that's in really remarkably good shape that was kept by William Clark of Lewis and Clark fame mm -hmm. in 1798, six years before the voyage of discovery up the Missouri River. He took a trip down the Mississippi River and recorded in great detail his findings along the river. Um, that, that's one of the older documents. So we have some 18th century, lots of 19th century, and a huge amount of 20th century material. So you've mentioned a couple of things, and I want to make sure we get, we get that in. Um, we've talked a lot about what an inviting space it is and all of the sort of really remarkable things that you're able to see there. So when can I put on my shoes and walk in the building? The uh, 
Uh, grand opening for the building will be at 10 a.m. on Saturday, August 10th. August 10th was chosen because that is the anniversary of Missouri statehood. Uh, in uh, 2021, we'll be celebrating the bicentennial. So mm -hmm. this August 10th will mark the 198th birthday of the state of Missouri, and we're, we will have a, a big bash uh and then the following Tuesday, we'll be open our regular hours. Okay. Our regular hours are 8 to 4.30, uh, Tuesday through Friday, and 8 to 3.30, or 8, 8.30 to 3.30 on Saturdays. And just so people will know, there is there's no admission price, right? As a matter of fact, we are prohibited by statute from charging admission. Um, there is a chance we're shooting to have a soft opening the week before. We had hoped to have a soft opening uh, by the 9th or 10th of July. Well, today's July 9th, and that's not going to happen. Uh, so we're, we're still moving things in. But uh, we're hoping by maybe the first week in August, but uh, don't show up unless you uh, see something on our website or well, Twitter feed or Facebook. Up with a hard hat with a hammer, <laughs> you might let me in, but other, otherwise not so yeah. much. So is there a lineup of dignitaries at the August 10th opening that you could share we, with we, us, or are we still working we're out still those work, details? We're still working on out the details, yeah. Okay. Uh, we do know the governor will not be able to be there. He's uh, he's going to be out of the country on a, on a trade mission. Okay. Uh, okay. But we hope to have a, a significant number of dignitaries, and including some of the, the local folks who were very helpful in, in helping us uh, get the funding for this. Another thing you said just briefly is you talked about e-volunteers. Um, I think one of the interesting things about, about the visibility of this facility is going to be that people who are just curious or curious about history or, you know, whatever, will sort of be able to come in and say, what could I do to help? So can you explain to our listeners what kind of what what's an e-volunteer and how do I how do I make myself available to be on that list and what sorts of things might I be asked to do? I think if you just send us an email, uh, go to our website and, and find the email and send us an email and indicate you're interested. Uh, the e-volunteers tend to be people who transcribe documents. Uh, when we think of, of putting something online, digitally, we think people usually think of running it through a scanner. It's much more complicated than that. If the document is handwritten before it can be OCR'd or op optical character recognition, uh, it has to be typed so that the scanning equipment can recognize the characters and then it can be uh, word searched. Um, and that's that's not an easy process. So that's, that's how we use most of our e-volunteers. We have other volunteers who come in. For example, we're going to have a, a, a really nice bookstore in the building that will focus entirely on Missouri books, uh, both new books and we also have a large collection of used books. And, and when you say Missouri books, these are books about Missouri? About Missouri. Okay. Yeah, about Missouri. Our, our mission is Missouri, and, and we've tried. Uh, there was a time when the State Historical Society was focused on the entire Middle West, Oh, that's a little big. Um, so we're, we're trying to refocus our attention on just Missouri. And so uh, I think we will be the best single place to go to to find a book written about any aspect of Missouri history or Missouri biography. So we're going to be looking for volunteers to help work in the bookstore, sort of like 
volunteers at the hospital who might. Or at Columbia Public Library, or, yeah, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there's also uh, uh, the processing of, of these records. Uh, an individual can be trained to help do that, to go through. We get, we get material sometimes in trash bags and cardboard boxes. Oh, my goodness. And we have people whose, whose job is to do uh, essentially to make order out of that chaos, who spend their time going through page by page and uh, you know, organizing this material so that it can be found, uh, so that it can be researched. We, we create then, when boxes come in like the Eagleton Papers, we create what we call finding aids yes. for that material, and then we put them online. And so the, the hope is, the theory is here, that a researcher can look at the Eagleton Papers online and see that box 52 contains correspondence with uh, President uh, Johnson mm-hmm. in 1968. And so if you're researching, or maybe in the Eagleton Papers you're wanting to to research uh, Eagleton's run for the vice presidency with McGovern in 1972. So you'd be able to email us and say, I think what you have in box 52, file folders 35 through 52 are material that I'm interested in, and I'd like to come in on such and such a day. Can you make sure that stuff is available? Because a lot of our stuff, even though we are moving into a much larger building, uh, a lot of our stuff is still going to be stored off-site. We have in Columbia alone, and, and you may know we have five other research centers we have research centers on each of the campuses of the University of Missouri, as well as Missouri State University and Southeast Missouri State, Springfield and Cape Girardeau. So a large collection like the Eagleton collection would be stored off-site because there's not a daily demand for right. that, and it doesn't make financial sense to store all of that material in a very expensive square footage space. So with a day or two of warning, we can bring in, call in those boxes. What we've tried to do in the last uh, two years is study very systematically the collections that are used a lot, and we're gonna bring those in from storage into the new building so that researchers can come and access that material so without any notice. In the last few 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 minutes that we have, um, I, I sort of, I sort of want, want to ask. So your vision, at least as I understood it, was people will come because of of what we have here or what we can access here from yes. from and things. Um, talk a little bit about how this becomes a destination, not just for historians, but just for regular folks who are curious. Well, I think first of all, uh, the artwork may be one of the things that people will come to see the most because this is world class art. Uh, we also plan an extensive public programming um, feature. In the current facility that we're in, in Ellis Library, we have no space to do lectures or to do musical performances or anything such as that. We hope in the new building to do a lot of performances. Uh, we we want to promote Missouri music. We're the, you know, the home of blues and ragtime and jazz. And fiddle All sorts music. of wonderful yeah. things. Yes. So we hope to have performance slash lecture presentations. We're launching a new lecture series that we're calling My Missouri, where we're hoping to uh, have people who are at the uh, 
pretty far along in their careers, perhaps near the end of their careers, reflect upon the notion of Missouri and how it has shaped and molded them. We're hoping that, in fact, uh, these lectures might become a series of books. Uh, the first My Missouri Lecture is going to be delivered by Clara McCaskill. I was wondering about that. Yeah, that's a that's a great that's a great start. Um, be, because she's you know she's at the near the end of her career. I don't mean to suggest Claire is no longer capable of doing anything. I was going to say, <laughs> but she's you know she's out of office now and uh, she's in another career. In fact, as an M MSNBC commentator, but I I, w I want to hear what what. Senator McCaskill has to say about how Missouri has shaped and molded her. And I want to hear that from a variety of people, from all political persuasions, and from every walk of life, whether they're athletes or business people or professors or bankers or, or you know, I, I think it will be interesting uh, and, and as I said, we're, we're trying to line up a number of people to give perhaps lectures at different places. Uh, they don't have to be here in Columbia. But uh, the, the McCaskill lecture will be on the first Saturday in November, uh -huh. which I believe is the second or third. I can't so remember. So mark your calendars now. Uh, it'll be in conjunction with our annual meeting, which will be, again, in the new Center for Missouri Studies. And if you can't come before then, you'll want to come to be that. a part of that. Well, Gary, thank you so much for taking time out of what I know is an incredibly busy time in your life um, to give us this little bit of an overview of what that new building is going to be like and furthermore what's going to be in it. Um, we really appreciate it. We hope that folks will come and see. I, I hope so, too. Thank you so much for the time and for the interest in the new Center for Missouri Studies. I, it's our pleasure. This is Lee Wilkins for Thinking Out Loud. Good evening.